Well, as we come to look at these uh, first verses in James on testing and trials, we've, we've been singing some tremendous songs of encouragement and I hope you will hold them in your mind both tonight and through the coming year. As I said at the start of uh, this service, uh, through January and February we're going to be working through these first three chapters of James, um, the chaps who are part of the Two Timothy group leadership training group will be uh, speaking um, I think we've each got a, a one to do um, so uh, we'll be working through those together just as we did when we did uh, First Thessalonians a while back now if you looked at the little introduction at the head of um, James in the ESV you may have read uh, that the book of James, the letter of James is perhaps commonly referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament and we know this letter just like Proverbs gives very practical instructions as to how to live as Christians it addresses works not for works sake that they should be in any way earnest favour with God but as a clear demonstration of our faith in God and his work of salvation in us I apologise, I don't have a, a PowerPoint tonight, I don't have any images for a, um, thought association to help you remember uh, points, but um, so you have to listen all the harder and, um, and make your notes accordingly. So as we begin, let's just look at these, this first verse, uh, this greeting that comes from James here. Let me read verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So, uh, just as a, uh, an introduction, who, who was James? Uh, generally held by scholars to be uh, James the Lord's brother, one of the apostles of the early church. Um, we know that Paul, when he writes to the Galatians, acknowledges that uh, James the Lord's brother was an apostle. Um, so we we know um, that much and how does James describe himself he says uh, James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ he makes no reference of his genealogy his connections to Jesus uh, as family as it were and we see from this from what James says that it's not who we are as a person that matters but it's who we are in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. What is your relationship to the Lord Jesus? Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in him for his forgiveness on the cross? Are you following him? Are you a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? James, the writer of this letter, was a servant of the Lord Jesus. And who is he writing to? He says to the twelve tribes in the dispersion we automatically think of uh, the 12 tribes of Israel the tribes who, who bore the names of the sons of Jacob uh, the tribes of the Old Testament but by Jesus' time on earth there was no longer any distinction uh, and the people, the descendants of the time were simply known as the Jews so who is James writing to when he says this <clears throat> well he's, he's writing to believers he's writing to Christians and if you remember elsewhere in the New Testament when Paul sometimes refers to the believers as uh, 
a spiritual Israel, um, men and women called and set apart for, to serve God, to be his children, are that spiritual Israel. And I believe that James is alluding to the same here, nothing more. He's, when he says he's writing to the twelve tribes in dispersion, he's writing to believers scattered abroad throughout the world. Well, that by way of beginning. I've got three, uh, three points tonight. First, we'll be looking in verses 2 to 8, uh, looking at trials. Then 9 to 11, uh, looking at the perspective of rich and poor. And then from uh, verses 12 through to 18, or 13 through 18, um, know your heart. They're not uh, equally uh, spread by way of time and content, so don't get alarmed if I spend the first half hour looking at (laughs) point one. So trials, let me read verses 2 through to 8. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable, in all his ways. Now I doubt very much that there isn't a person in the room here tonight who isn't facing some sort of of trial at present. So these words from James are relevant for all of us here this evening. Trials of various kinds, James says in verse 2. In the context of the passage, it's most likely that James is referring to the trials the Christians faced as a direct consequence of the persecution they, re- they were facing on account of their faith in Jesus. The persecution from the Jews, no less. That could have been loss of their livelihoods, their property, could have brought about poverty, physical abuse, punishment, verbal abuse, all these things and more that people suffer when they're despised by society. But there are other trials too. And if we bring uh, to the context of our own life and situation, there are the trials, aren't there, as a consequence of living in a fallen world. We have problems in our workplaces, with our neighbours, even within our families. Not forgetting health issues and all the trial that comes associated with them. And then, of course, is that great enemy of all believers, the devil himself, who goes abroad like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour. And the devil aside, there's the trial of temptation to sin that comes not from the devil, but from the warring of our old nature within us, and more of that later when we look into the the later verses of this section of James. But let us notice four things about trials. First, let me say that trials are inevitable. Inevitable for the believer. James writes, Account it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. When and not if. There's no if about it. It's a when. 
And we should not forget the words of Jesus to his disciples. In this world you will have trouble, you will have tribulation. The troubles we face may be a consequence of our Christian faith. It may lead to the loss of livelihood and property, and physical abuse. And certainly for some brothers and sisters in Christ, in some parts of the world, that, that is the case. We see, don't we, such hatred against Christians in some parts of the world. We shouldn't be surprised. Are we surprised? Hear the words of Jesus again. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's John chapter 15. So persecutions for our faith are inevitable. Sickness is also inevitable. Uh, it entered the world at the fall. When Adam first sinned, death came. And all the health troubles that lie between birth and death came. And we know them and experience them. And some of us experience them uh, more than others. And then some trials come because they're actually of our own making. They come through our own bad choices, our own stupidity, our own carelessness. We shouldn't be blind to that. But temptation is also inevitable. And we struggle to lay aside the sins that so easily entangle us. Trials are inevitable. But trials are for our benefit. Look at verses 3 and 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing. Trials are the testing of our faith. Do we really trust God in every circumstance of life? It's a question for us. Do we trust that he works all things for our good? That he will provide, as we sang, you know, strength for today and hope for tomorrow? That he's with us when we pass through the waters, waters of affliction? that he will provide a way of escape and help us in those times of temptation. So my question is, what are the trials in your life producing in you at present? Are they producing a resolute standing firm on God's promises? A determination to keep on keeping on, as we were thinking about last Sunday evening? Are they producing a calmness and patience as you wait for God to act? <coughs> says here that <clears throat> the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. Other texts say perseverance, um, patience. And the Christians that James is writing to knew this fact for themselves. James says here in verse um, 3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. They'd proved it. Are you proving it? Will you prove it through the coming year? 
trials test the genuineness of our faith we, we sang didn't we about um, uh, refining trials refining us <clears throat> that thought we just turn over into into first peter uh, and chapter one he's talking about the glorious hope of the believer uh, that glorious future and inheritance in heaven and whilst we're rejoicing in that verse six he says though now for a little while as was necessary you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in the praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ the genuineness of your faith the genuineness of my faith put to the test by trials and it's interesting isn't it that the same troubles that cause non-Christians to be so angry so resentful almost to the point or even to the point of hating God are the self-same things that should bring out the fruit of patience or perseverance in, in our lives in the lives of those of us who love and trust God and Paul wrote to the Romans he urged them to be patient in tribulation at the end of his letter James does the same in chapter 5 and verse 7 he says be patient brothers until the coming of the Lord and he goes on uh, explaining why we should remain steadfast he, he goes on in verse um, verse 11 there he said you've heard of the steadfastness of Job one of the old saints who persevered steadfastness and the amazing thing about all these troubles all these trials that we um, will experience what we will face is that they are aiding our becoming more and more like Jesus our saviour did you notice that what is the ultimate effect of trials verse 4 and let steadfastness this is the result of the, the uh, this is what we exhibit as we face trials and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing Remember, if you were here last Sunday evening, we were thinking in Philippians about <coughs> uh, Paul. He said that not that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. We need to remember until our drying day, the trials that we meet are just one of many things that are helping to transform us more and more into the perfectness, perfectness and likeness of Jesus. So trials are inevitable therefore our benefit uh, trials warrant wisdom look at verse 5 if any of you lacks wisdom let him ask God why does James now suddenly pick up on this subject of wisdom he's talking about testing of our, of our faith if you think back to the life group studies that we, we did together in, in the book of Proverbs before writing any of the Proverbs uh, that so are helpful for right living, that, that give us an insightful look at, at human nature and the good and the bad responses and actions uh, that are exhibited, uh, the writer urges again and again for the importance of, of gaining wisdom, of getting understanding, of getting that ultimate wisdom, which is knowing God for who he is, understanding his ways. And looking to him to guide in every aspect of our lives 
So in every trial that we meet as God's children, we need wisdom. <coughs> we need wisdom as to how to act, how to speak, how to cope, so that we don't despair. We don't give up on our faith, but we continue to honour him who loves us and cares for us. If any of you lacks wisdom, um, I don't think there's any if about that either. We, I think we all, if we're honest, lack uh, wisdom. We need to ask God. But just a little digression here. Let's quickly look at five things for our encouragement in this matter of wisdom and God. God is the source of all wisdom, all the wisdom that we need to help us. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. He's the person to whom we go. And we go to a God who gives generously, verse 5. We know God has lavished on us many, many blessings, a great abundance of goodness and his kindness. So we can expect God to do the same, to be the same, to give us all the wisdom we need for a particular situation. He gives generously. And he gives indiscriminately. He, he gives, by that I mean he gives to all, it says here. Let him ask God who gives generously to all. It's insofar as God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't have his favourites. He will not have his favourites. If we ask whoever we are, he will give wisdom. And then it says he gives without reproach. <clears throat> How comforting that is. God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He holds no grudges. Our past life is of no consequence. It is no bar to his giving wisdom when we ask. And in view of those four things at least, why wouldn't we go to God and ask for wisdom when we're in times of trial and difficulty? It's imperative that we ask God for wisdom and we'd be fools not to. But then a fifth and final thing about, about wisdom and God. And that is, he notices, he gives, he says, let us ask God. He gives in response to our asking. He says that he, he will do that. He will give to those who ask. <coughs> we need to be constant in prayer, asking God for his help. We need to be asking him for wisdom each new day. But we need to ask believing. Did you notice that? Let him ask in faith with no doubting. Remember Jesus' words. Whatsoever you ask in my name, believing that you will receive. We mustn't be willy-wonty kind of people, vacillating, doubting whether God's going to give or not give. That is not how we should be. James says that such a person is like a wave of the sea and I'm sure we've all seen uh, a rough sea and observed the turmoil of the water. There's no stability there. And so it is with the doubter. Uh, and James makes it very plain. Uh, the doubter, the doubting person, verse 7, he's not to suppose he'll receive anything. He's double-minded. He's unstable in all his ways. They might seem like harsh words. Because if we're all honest, perhaps there are times when we do come doubting God. We're not altogether as firm and confident in our asking as we should be. And perhaps we need to be like the man who came to Jesus seeking to be 
healed who said Lord I believe help my unbelief so those five things thinking about wisdom and then fourthly trials not only are they inevitable not only for a benefit not only do they warrant wisdom but trials lead to joy let me read verse 2 and verse (coughs) 12 to you count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds and verse 12 blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him we sang earlier through all the changing scenes of life in trouble or in joy the praises of my God shall still my heart and tongue employ are you am I able to praise God through all those different circumstances that we face am I able to praise God are you able to praise God as we sang when we're found in the desert place when we're walking through the wilderness when we're on the road marked with suffering when there's pain in the offering do you and I as James encourages us the believers here to do count it pure joy when we meet trials now I'm sure that good things bring a smile to your face they do to mine do you see trials as good things or bad things well James leaves us in no doubt we have to consider them as good things they benefit us they bring us closer to God they hone our character to a greater Christ likeness and will surely make us glad <clears throat> and not only do they lead us to a joy now in this life day by day week by week but they lead us to uh, an eternal joy they lead us to that crown of life last Sunday evening if you were here we were thinking about how to have a a happy 2019 Uh, we were looking forward to a resurrection day a day of our upward call in Christ and we should be joyfully keeping on keeping on to that day whatever our circumstance for the ultimate joy it says of receiving the crown of life blessed is the man says James who is perseveres who remains steadfast who is patient under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life implication there is we know we, we, we get the crown of life when we're finally called home to glory so we'll be undergoing the testing all the days of our life on, on earth so I come now to Uh, verses 9 to 11 the second point this evening um, where James gets us to look at the perspective of of rich and poor let me just read those verses to you let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Uh, if you were here last Sunday morning, you would have heard Chris um, when he was speaking about, again, having, having how to have a happy new year and numbering our days. It was about getting a right perspective on life. Was, um, 
part of his ministry that morning. Here James wants us to get a right perspective as to rich and poor, people in very contrasting circumstances. And James isn't just generalising here as to society as a whole. He is specifically referring referring to, to Christians. He's referring to believers. He says in verse 9, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So he is writing to believers. And in any local church, there are those who are richer and poorer than others. The diversity is even greater if we look at the global church and consider church, say, in Africa and church in, in the UK. Now, is James wandering from the track here? He's been talking about testing and trials. Now he's talking about rich and poor. What's, what's all this about? Is he, is he, is he uh, been derailed a bit here? Well, no, he hasn't. He's still on the subject of trials. If we think about poverty and wealth, they each bring problems and trials in their own way. Well, it's easy to see and observe and readily admit that issues arising from, uh, from not having wealth bring trials, can be a great trial. We possibly overlook the fact that having wealth brings its own trials too. We studied in Ecclesiastes a while back. We saw something of the problems for the rich. We've only have to think through some of the New Testament teachings of Jesus' teachings too about the snares of riches, the, uh, the trouble that can come um, through having wealth. So what does James say here? He's on the subject of rich and poor. He says, let the lowly brother boast. Boast in what? Boast. We sing, don't we, sometimes. Now let the poor say I'm rich. Let the weak say I'm strong. <clears throat> boast in his exaltation. The poor believer is the ultimate possessor of all things. <clears throat> Paul writes to Corinthians, he says this, Sorrowful, always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, as possessing nothing, yet possessing everything. Jesus, our Saviour, has been exalted to the highest place. He's seated at the right hand of the Father and is going to raise up all believers to receive that glorious inheritance that will not spoil or fade, that's kept in heaven for his people. The poor can surely boast in their exaltation. But what about the rich brother? And what should they boast? Again, I think of the scriptural words, I will not boast in anything but the cross of Jesus. A realisation that the rich, however rich, are in fact poor, they're wretched. In God's sight, they are nothing without Jesus. We sing, don't we? Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. You, my inheritance, now and always. You and you only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure, thou art. The rich are to boast in their humiliation. They are to see themselves for what they are. Men and women, saved by the grace of God, wholly undeserving in themselves. And James gives a very graphic picture, reminding the rich that they will die and fade away just like the flower of the grass a reminder that we bring nothing into the world and we can take nothing out we will pass from this life in the midst of our pursuits this is what 
James writes there, the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. They may be happy pursuits. Fade away, we will. Our wealth and our pursuits count for nothing in the light of eternity. So let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. There's two shun words there. (laughs) (laughs) The realisation come upon them. (laughs) Two more for a list. (coughs) So, he's not digressed there. There are trials that come from those things. We need to have a right perspective of them. And then, finally, we come to these last verses, 13 through to 18. So I'm heading, know your heart. This is what we read. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creation. In these verses we come perhaps to the trial here that that none of us escape as Christians. We might never have faced a persecution as a consequence of our faith like the Jewish believers in James's time or like believers in other parts of the world. We might have gone through life so far without any major health issues or family problems and trials. any other things as a a consequence of living in a fallen world but we all understand what it is to be tempted whether we're young in our Christian faith or old in our Christian faith whether we're male or female none of us are exempt and what is the biggest progress to my progress in the Christian life to your progress in the Christian life I venture to say that all of the testing and trials that we fa- of all those testing and trials that we face, it's this: it's our own heart's desire to do wrong. Now, whilst God may permit certain trials to test our faith, I think of people like Joseph, who remember found himself in a pit and then found himself in a prison. Um, all those things that uh, befell him, catastrophe after catastrophe, humanly speaking. Or Paul who had his thorn in the flesh which was not removed. We already alluded to the steadfastness of Job in his trials. But James makes it very clear that whilst God might permit trials to test our faith, when it comes to temptation to do wrong, God has no part in it. We need to know our hearts. So what James says, doesn't it? Let no one say, verse 13, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. It's as black and white as that. God does not tempt us. 
but he's very explicit as to what is the cause of the temptation. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. If James is the New Testament Proverbs, let's just flick back to a proverb. And the proverb for 23, the writer had this to say, Keep our hearts, keep your heart with all diligence, all vigilance, for from it, from it flow the springs or the issues of life. And Jesus' own teaching, so clear, wasn't it, when he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Notice that in these verses there is no mention of Satan, there is no mention of the devil, though a troubler of Christians he is. This is specifically about us. Who we were, who we are and who we shall be. I'm sure we know our Bibles. We know Paul's writing to the Colossians. He makes it very clear, doesn't he, that those of us who are Christians, we've died with Christ, our life is hidden with Christ in God. He says that we've put off our old self with its practices and put on a new self which is being renewed in the knowledge and after the image of its creator. But nevertheless, he goes straight on to say... He talks about putting to death and putting away sinful practices. So whilst we are new people in Christ, there is a continual warring still within us. We have regenerated hearts that God has changed. We now believe and trust in him. But our old nature is there to rear its ugly head. And don't we know it and how it grieves us. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We know it, it grieves us, but I venture to say probably it doesn't grieve us as it should at the time we indulge it. The heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked. wicked. Our hearts were once like that. So, as James says, let's not be deceived anymore. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. We need to watch, we need to pray that we don't fall into temptation. Jesus' own words, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Comes back to this whole thing of trials, in this instance a trial of temptation, lack wisdom, let him ask God. We need to be seeking God daily to help us, to help us to find that way of escape in such a time, which he has promised to show us. But I'll not finish on a, a note of perhaps I say despair, but, but one of delight, because James goes on to remind us that we have a God who never turns his face from us, who delights to give us everything that is good. Verse 17, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God doesn't turn his back on us. 
and he is the giver of all good gifts. He will make the way of escape for us when we are tempted if we sincerely look to him and ask him. And why? Because we are his people. Because we are his children. Verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. <clears throat> God has given us new birth. He's kind of, as it were, he's brought us forth. New birth. We're special. We're set apart for him. And as we think back to the offering of the first fruits of the harvest to God, they were very special. We are likened to those first fruits. He says we've been brought forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. There's a day coming when we will be presented faultless before his throne. All those trials, all those temptations will be no more. And they will have had their full effect and brought about that perfectness, perfectness and completeness, that Christ-likeness in us. And it will be a day of exceeding joy. So let us thank God tonight for that certainty. And we're going to sing in closing a lovely hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Um, it talks about the the pillows that roll over us trials that buffet but it reminds us that in spite of all these things Christ has saved us <coughs> and whatever our situation today it is well with our souls <coughs>